Hey, Dad. Hey, Sade. I have a question for you. I'm ready to answer that question. It's a different one today. You ready? I am still ready. What's your favorite color? My favorite color is green. Is it really? It is truly green. I had no idea. You definitely knew it was green. I did not know that about you. I definitely highlight green um, in terms of clothing and well, I knew that. green in terms of earrings for your mom. You should see the signs of green. I didn't know that green was your favorite color. I just thought that you like had to have an affinity because you did climate change. No, actually, green goes deeper than that for me. It's not just climate change, but climate change is also everything. Wow, look at that. All right. Well, welcome back to Intergenerational. Um, I'm Sade. And I'm Dan. And quick sidebar is that today we are actually in the same place for the first time for the first episode that we're recording. So if you hear any ambient noise, it is because we are on vacation. Well, vacation, but we're also looking at some climate change issues. So everything ties together to some degree. Sorry, I'm on vacation while my dad does work. (laughs) One way to say that is Sade is a dependent and I can write this off, we hope. Fingers crossed. IRS, if you're listening to this podcast, (laughs) we promise it's just research. (laughs) Um, But if you hear any noises today, that's what's going on. But we'll just jump right into it. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about climate change and its effects. And so this is definitely your interest area. So do you want to kick us off? Well, I do. And actually, partially being here in the South Pacific and looking at the changes in coral, the changes in weather patterns, the changes in fish and marine mammal migration are all things that we kind of see by literally looking outside. But I think the thing to start with for kind of the U.S.-focused audience is the degree to which we have now seen a series of historically, quote unquote, bad events, and they have all had a major climate change component. So the absolutely record-breaking heat we've just seen in the U.S. and Canadian Northwest, where records were not broken by a degree or two in terms of heat. They were broken by five to 10 degrees in many cities. So what we're seeing are events that forecasters would have previously said This is one in 300 or 500 year events going on. But yet we've seen these. Last year, we saw the horrific fires in California and Colorado and Oregon and Washington. The year before that, we saw horrific fires in Australia. And the extreme heat we're seeing in parts of British Columbia, reaching temperatures in the 120 degree Fahrenheit range, are being rivaled now by temperatures in the Russian Arctic in Siberia. And so we are seeing things that simply make no sense unless your context is climate change, for which the science is settled, is making our weather patterns not only more predictable, but predictably more extreme. And so what we're seeing around us is not the climate change that we envisioned a couple decades ago when we said we're going to think about gradual warming and maybe storms become more frequent. But what we're now seeing are the types of extremes that kill animals, that kill people. The estimate is that we might have lost a billion individual organisms, mussels, clams, and things along the Canadian coast. So we're seeing record change. And it's now record change that every scientific model says could not happen without climate change. It's not just we saw a hot year or a drought in California. We're seeing climate-driven extremes of which we're going to keep seeing these. And so that kind of, for me, sets the context. And it's not just the science. I'm actually really keen to get in with Sade today. Some of the differences in what this is going to mean for my generation, 
passing on the world to her generation, having to think totally differently about infrastructure, about likely higher levels of crime. We know during hot weather, crime goes up. We also know domestic violence mm. in particular goes up. So we, we see lots of things that might have some technical components, but these are really socially driven changes and that driver is climate change. Yeah, there's a lot to jump in there. I guess my first question for you is on the concept of extremes. I think like five, 10 years ago, we would start to see kind of extreme weather patterns, but it wasn't necessarily heat. And so you had a lot of people pushing back on, well, climate change isn't real because global warming isn't happening here and now. And I'm curious how you as a scientist respond to that type of you know response. Well, I'm going to tell you how I respond to it, but you have to preface it with the scientists have not done a very good job up until very recently trying to take in what you just said. When you say global warming, you're implying that the difference is warming. And so there's a number of wonderful scientists out there Catherine Hayhoe in Texas, um, Anthony Lacerowitz at Yale, people who say the job of climate communication is as important or more important as the job of doing the science in the first place. And that's not a perspective that the classic physicists and chemists and mathematicians who kind of got a lot of this work started were prepared to think about. They sort of thought you'd write the paper, you send it out there. If you're lucky, you get two minutes on Science Friday and somehow <laughs> the world changes as a result. And that is not what happens. It's really about getting the messages across. And one of them is what you just brought up, Sade, and that is that climate change means extremes happen more regularly and the extremes become worse. And extremes right. kill people, extremes kill animals, extremes kill ecosystems. Extremes, I hope, are what will drive political change. But saying global warming versus climate change, or as Catherine Hayhoe likes to say, global weirding, that's really <laughs> the world that we're one. seeing. Okay, so then before we jump into kind of the science and the effects, I know that I have a hard time in life dealing with people who are naysaying things that I feel like I know are inherently true. How do you deal with people who don't believe in climate change? Well, I think that's one of the topics that the climate science community has been not just blind to, but if you make the assumption that the scientific process is you do your best work, you write a paper, someone else writes an op-ed or does a news article about it, and it just kind of gets into the outside world. That's not just a naive view. That's kind of an egocentric view. You're assuming that everyone begins with the same priors as you. Right. If you say global warming to someone living in far northern Canada, their first reaction might be, good, I want some global warming. <laughs> so getting the perspective across that we have to think about this very differently and that you've got to co-create the knowledge and you've got to co-create the frame to think about it. That's a biggie. So one of my favorites, or I guess favorites is the wrong word. Talking <laughs> my about these favorite climate change. Right. My favorite climate change item, but really what I'd be saying is a really good example of this through is some of the cartoons that you've been seeing recently. One of which is a father or mother talking to their child saying, this is the hottest year I've ever experienced. And then pointing at their kid and saying, and this is the coolest year you're ever going to yeah. experience. Wow. So the context of what was average over the last 30 years and what's coming are two different worldviews. And the science community does not 
have any good playbook to to talk that through. Okay, there are so many questions that come up for me. The first is on the IPCC paper that has kind of been released. That's pretty naysaying recently. I can provide a link to that in our show notes. Um, But I guess it has a lot of people feeling very stuck on the fact that it feels like things are very irreversible and like we're all doomed and there's no coming back from this. And how do you respond to those type of people who are like, well, it's too late to make change? Well, I think that's exactly why you need to think as hard or harder about the communication context than you do about just the science. And just the science is no simple business. So I'm not trying to trivialize what <laughs> what people like me do, but I am trying to trivialize thinking that you put a fact out there and that everyone will have the same context, the same priors you do, and that somehow they come to the same conclusion. So I've been part of this IPCC process uh, since 1999. And I've seen our collective statements become more dire and dire in terms of climate change is something that's coming. We're not going to be able to really know for five years. That was our statement in the late 90s to climate change is with us and extreme events are very likely driven by it to the most recent reports that are based, they're saying a combination of climate change is with us. Things are happening more rapidly than we could have ever forecast before. And we now need to think about it. So that's the negative side. Okay, well, then is it too late? Well, so that's what I think is actually the interesting part of the story. The solutions look more possible now than 10 years ago. And that sounds really counterfactual because if climate change is getting worse, why is it that solving it now looks more doable than 10 years ago? 10 years ago, we didn't have scientists, let alone politicians, let alone student and youth activist groups saying, we can convert our economy to all clean energy. We can convert to all electric and hydrogen vehicles. The idea that the solutions look more obtainable and realistic now than years ago is, I think, why concerted effort based around the science and based around what I would like to think is a big driver. And that is everyone either has kids or knows kids or sees them on the street or has some (laughs) perspective on the next generation. And one of the things you say is we have all these tools now. We don't need to leave the world a worse place than we found it. Now, we have been saying that and not doing it for decades, right. but this is, you know, an extinction level event, as they like to say in, in movies like Independence Day. This is something that we need to deal with. But when I was in graduate school decades ago, I was literally taking a course from a Nobel laureate in physics, and he said, just a few percent of clean energy on the grid will make it physically unstable. It'll become communist or blow up or something. What's wrong with communist? How dare he? Nothing. Well, especially for (laughs) for an Eastern European uh, refugee, as as this uh, Nobel laureate was. But I would say the lesson is that you can't just build the model or have a pilot project in some city. You've got to you've got to see you can do it on a large scale. And we now know that some big economies will look at Denmark is a smaller economy, no offense to my Danish relatives, Germany, California, Bangladesh, Morocco, China, in some ways, not in others. There are some big economies that have made many of the first steps. And this is really why I think the answer to your tough first question 
is, yes, the science says it is dire, but we also have a much, much better toolkit to make the changes. So much so that the hard part of solving climate change is no longer science. It's political and social movements and a recognition that if you don't want to suffer all of the worst parts of this, you need to start now. And that's an argument for the youth to lead, not the youth to be sidelined and marginalized in dealing with this crisis. Yeah, I guess this is a funny note in this kind of dire episode. Do you want to know my favorite climate change solutions? I'm hoping that they're going to align with those that will have the biggest impact, but let's find out. No, okay. Well, I'll link some real ones um, in our show notes again, but my favorite climate change solutions uh, came from a little-known TV show. I don't know if any of you have heard of it. It's called Ecopolis. It's a it's a gem. Um, a little I... self-promotion going on here, <laughs> but thank you, Sade. No, so um, for those of you who don't know my dad from this this way is he had a TV show for a little bit where there were a lot of very dramatic shots of him like swiveling around in his desk chair, but um, they not that dramatic, pretty dramatic, like a lot of face zooms, but where you were presented with multiple different climate change solutions and you picked the best one. And so as I let you get into the science, I'm curious how you weigh out what is the best solutions and how you think about the science as you do this. So when I did this show, Copalypse, a, a, a a, 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 not not climate apocalypse, but climate ecopolis, so um, and thank you for bringing it up. I was told that this is like my ideal venue. It's the venue that comes right out of Ghostbusters. Oh, that scientist over there, he seems more like a game show host. And that was the vibe. I loved it. I thought it was. I sent it to my friends because I thought it was the funniest thing to see my dad in this like dramatized like. The climate is changing. One man will save it all. Well, so that that of course is the worst aspect of it. We'll 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 leave that one for unpacking later. <laughs> but what was interesting about um, Acopolis for me was that the idea was that four technologies get presented, and then each hour you whittle it down from the four. They each present themselves to two, and then one. And the show was all based around this premise of you pick the winner, and. They expected the winner, in my view, would be the one that came out and tops in our carbon footprint, our climate calculator. So whatever saves the most carbon was going to be the winner. And I kept surprising them and they had to retape some episodes because I kept saying, we have one that's going to save 14%, one's going to save 26%, this is 29%, this is 32%. But the most savings were not, to me, always the biggest winner. I was looking for what will drive innovation, particularly by driving the market. And right. they kept looking at me and saying, we just want you to pick the coolest technology. And I said, these are all cool technologies. We should do them all. But the one, if I have to rate it down to one, is that which is going to be a big change. So I'm going to give one example because it really kind of okay. knocked them off their, their, their sort of plan a little bit. We had one that was put solar on every building. And I said, that's great. We should do it. And then we had one that's, we should grow I remember this one. food in the tops of buildings, yeah. on walkways, um, using a process called aeroponics, where there's no soil, that's hydroponics, but there's also very little water. You're just spraying nutrients on the roots. And that didn't save as much carbon. But from my perspective, it was one that gave individuals, but more importantly, companies, a tangible thing to do to say, yeah. we could move 
our food demands into our cities. And we could think in a much more holistic, cyclical way. And to my mind, that was a bigger winner. And they had to rewrite a whole episode because they thought, oh, this is a physicist. He's going to pick solar and stop there. But the biggest benefit of the aeroponics came out of a laboratory in Singapore, it turns out, was it allowed people and in particular big companies to feel like they were a positive force. They weren't just kind of contributing a little bit to a carbon dial. They were changing their employees. They were changing their customers, all pattern of relating to food. And that to me is a big win in this story. Yeah. And there's the accessibility element, right? Like the more you can empower individuals to take these things into their own hands and like be involved, the better it is. And so that's often, you know, how we think about solutions for lots of things, which is how can you get people invested so that they want to make changes going forward? So I've got a question for you then. Okay. So when you see these um, kind of example technologies or these exa- you know, episodes of Ecopolis, what are the kinds of things that you feel like empower versus make you kind of a cog in a machine? One view of the climate change solution is we all adopt clean energy and we all kind of fall into line. We travel less, we do this and that. But what are some of the things that you look at and you say, yeah, I could see my generation getting behind this idea in a way that my generation has clearly failed to do? Yeah, um, I think that's hard. I think for me, there's a couple things there. The first is that I try to just make the better choice. And that's how I think about life in general, right? Like if given two options, you should make the one that is more beneficial for more people. Um, but I think where I have a lot of qualms is that I think it's like 70%, you're going to correct me on this, but like 70% of emissions or like all of this negative stuff comes from these big corporations. So it feels like doing things like, you know, stopping using plastic straws or whatever, like don't actually do very much because the people who are making the most negative impact don't really care. Um, But I think for me in general, it's trying to be as eco-friendly in the choices that I make. Oftentimes that saves money. So those go hand in hand for me. But they didn't used to. Right. And so I think now it's kind of making better choices. And I think I'm very cognizant of greenwashing. So, you know, a lot of companies will act like they're doing a lot of good, but they're not in reality. And so I think I look into things and just try to make the best options with what's presented to me. But I do think I feel very angry because, you know, I can drive my electric car, I can do all of these good things. But at the end of the day, if these corporations don't stop like literally lighting the ocean on fire, like happening um, right now in the <laughs> Gulf of Mexico. Yeah. Like how much impact does me using a reusable straw make, you know? So I think this is a really interesting one because a lot of save the planet dialogues in the past, recycle tuna cans, use um, spaghetti straws, not plastic or metal straws, was really based around the idea that consumer behavior is something which we can turn and turn into a climate friendly world. And then you find out that, for example, you decide you're going to telecommute. And by to telecommute, now instead of driving driving to work, now you buy all this electronics. And right. it's not just the carbon footprint of mining all these materials. It's the human rights violations in countries where we get the lithium, right. all these materials. And so even if you make that good choice, like you just said. It's like every choice is a bad choice. Right. But <laughs> but I think that that's, that's, the right, that's, that's the right perspective because 
if the consumer choices don't change corporate behavior, then it's just a PR greenwashing feel good right. campaign. But if consumer choices make the biggest companies take stock in what they're doing and say, we actually could provide consumers with a range of these things and we'll even quantify it. That changes the story. And there are some companies, I mean, Unilever gets called out a lot as a company mm -hmm. that really thought through their product lines. Um, can we get away from plastic containers? The effort in, ironically, the fast food industry, which has huge environmental and water impacts and human rights impacts, to go away from styrofoam to cardboard uh, containers was a hugely positive step. But if you put your burger made from beef that's been grown <laughs> at the expense of the Amazon right. in a cardboard container, it's like that famous line from Apocalypse Now from uh, initially when it came out and it was this American GI played by Martin Sheen says, yeah, we're in here in Vietnam and we cut people in half with a machine gun and then give them a Band-Aid. And it right. just feels like this total mismatch. And my generation is exceedingly guilty of that ridiculous double standard. Yeah. And I want to jump back to that. But I do also want to make a disability caveat, which is that oftentimes I feel like some of these things that use more resources benefit disabled people. So I think we've had a lot of discussions recently on the internet about things like, you know, the the oranges that are hand peeled and then in a saran wrap or like people who can't use other types of straws. And I think that when you pass the responsibility to consumers, you also potentially harm people who don't have other options. Um, and so I think there's this weird balance that has to be dealt with um, that isn't always done properly. And I think it's hard, especially when you see people doing something that you feel like isn't sustainable. So again, the like individually packaged oranges, I think are a really good example for people who, you know, need the empowerment to be able to eat on their own. That can be a really big thing for people, you know, with neurocognitive issues and stuff like that. And then you see people using this and people get really angry. And it's like, well, yeah, obviously you want to minimize your impact, but there are also people who need some of these accommodations. And I think that's also a hard note when we're passing kind of this corporate responsibility in my eyes off onto individuals. So I think that actually this is a, a big theme. And there's, there's a famous paper by a former colleague of mine at, at UC Berkeley named Kirk Smith, who sadly passed away recently. And he wrote an article. He's very environmentally aware. He works on topics of pollution in homes and cook stoves in, in Africa and India and Central America and their impact on the poorest of the poor. And he wrote this paper that shocked a lot of people in the environmental field. The title was In Praise of Petroleum. And his point wasn't that petroleum is good. It was that there are certain applications of things that make life vastly better. If you're a very poor peasant woman, a campesina, in the highlands of, of, of Guatemala, or if you're living on absolute edge of poverty in Kibera, uh, Kenya's largest slum, that the ability to cook conveniently with a minuscule amount of fossil fuels is a really good thing. And to say we're going to solve climate change on the back of the most politically or gender or ethnically disabled, the people we discriminate against, is a crazy yeah. flipping of the story. And yet we get that so often. The rich northern countries will do something first. They'll develop huge amounts of hydropower or build coal plants and then say to the poorest countries, well, you can't do that. And as if 
Right. All of that history of development you ignore because now for the most affluent, we have a better way. And I think we have the ability to change now, which is so, so unfair to kind of handicap is the best. I don't know how to describe it. Like to, to stop these countries from developing, especially these countries who are like so heavily touched by things like colonization or these other countries like the U S have benefited so immensely from all of these negative, you know, climate impactful things. And it's really kind of weird to me that they turn around like, well, you can't develop this way. So I think this is this is kind of gets at the heart of kind of are we going to solve things through consumer culture or are we going to solve things through a mixture of clever regulation to make companies see that if they really do the math right, if they look at the, t- the full range of impacts, that environmentally beneficial choices are almost always socially beneficial, but there are certain categories, the poorest of the poor in these most marginal communities, the poorest people living in favelas in Brazil and the slum we just mentioned in Kenya, that there are places where I wouldn't say it's an exception. I would say that it's an expediency to get them better resources, better opportunities. And this is the kind of environmental and I'll call it what I think it is. It's environmental racism to say the path that the affluent countries today used is totally foreclosed to the world's poorest people. That people that doesn't make any sense. What does make sense is educating all of us that the true costs of pollution are something we're all going to bear and the poor are going to bear it more than anybody right. else. So that's a great segue into let's get a little doomsday. Um what does the future look like if we don't turn things around? Well, I mean, I don't even want to go into the doomsday, but I guess we have to. And we've already seen it. The The fires we've seen in Australia and California, the heat waves in uh, Siberia, these things are all going to become so common. And we don't even know what the next big wave of disasters will be. Is it going to be massive changes in fish populations? Is it going to be dust bowl type conditions. We don't know what surprises lurk in the greenhouse. And one of the aspects of the science that's really humbling is that in each area I look at, glacial melting, changes in biodiversity, disempowerment of indigenous people that have often done some of the best jobs of conservation. The more we talk to the experts area by area, the more we hear horror stories that aren't even in the public eye yet. And so the doomsday cases of massive collapse of food production for bio, uh, for biodiversity impacts, for human impacts, massive change in heat waves so that people are dying by the thousands. These things are entirely in our immediate future, not two or three decades away. We're seeing it already with the number of deaths in British Columbia, the several billion animals that died in Australia during their fires. These are on the doorstep. And so the grim version is grim. But like we said in the beginning, one of the interesting upsides is that there is a much more activist and empowered generation, your generation in the teens and 20s today. Look at that podcast title tie in. It's just a little intergenerational (laughs) is really exciting. And the older you are, the more set in your ways you are. If for no other reason than the older you are on average, the richer you are. Every gener- The oldest right. generations are the richest. So they're the least likely to want to change. 
unless they have some level of compassion or empathy <laughs> for their own children. And I would like to think that would be enough of a start, but we've been saying it for decades and haven't changed. Okay. So, ooh, random question. What do you think is the most pressing immediate climate change thing that we need to kind of get our handle on? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to avoid answering it directly, not just because I'm Rude. one of those older folks, <laughs> but because we what need- What are you saying? Like kill all old people? Is that your answer here? Well, there was the statement, don't trust anybody over 30. And I would say when it comes to climate change, there's a lot of truth in that uh, little little line. But I think the problem is that if you say, well, we've got to convert our energy to renewable energy, that's clear and it's true, but you can't do it at the expense of biodiversity. You right. can't do it at the expense of disempowering young people, women, et cetera. Empowering. And I don't think you have to. Well, but imagine a solution that provides clean energy, but it comes at the expense of massive amounts of landscape, or it comes at the expense of only rich people can have as much energy as they want. Those are disempowering okay, for women, gotcha. minorities, Sorry. everybody else. Okay. And so I think that the, the issue is that the more we look at this thorny problem, the more we find that solving one aspect of it alone is not only a recipe for, for failure, but it leaves out all of these things, which we what we call in the field co-benefits. Right. The benefits of clean energy and sustainable agriculture is a multiplication of the two. So right now, okay. there's a huge movement to rethink marine food production. We talked about it a little, little bit in the episode around seaspiracy. But doing renewable energy and marine food that's a win-win. And those are the kinds of solutions that we're going to have to not just dip our toe in the water and kind of start a little bit. We're going to have to go full bore. That does mean we're going to make some mistakes. But on the other side of the story, we're not going to discover a lot of winning pathways if we just kind of tippy-toe into climate solutions. We need to really scale up and recognize that Every time we've tried this, the co-benefits have been huge. Co-benefits of not just large solar in the desert, but solar integrated on rooftops and solar integrated into farming fields and floating solar. They have other benefits. And it's those stories that stretch our ability to kind of put together, oh, I want to do A and B. A times B is even better. That makes sense. So I guess I'm also curious how your views have shifted over the years. So speaking of solar panels, when I was a wee child, um, this is so pretentious of us that my like third grade, fifth grade science fair, whatever, everyone's making those like baking soda, volcanoes, whatever. And my dad's like, oh, Shade, like you're going to make solar panels out of blackberries. And I was like, okay, cool. It's so, like, that was my project. So I feel like We've always had these really interesting approaches to climate change, but, you know, your views have shifted over the years. Like, I think for a while we were talking about that being a really feasible, you know, solution in some places. You were really into ethanol for a while there. Like, how have your views on climate change shifted and how do you tackle that kind of being a public figure? Well, I love the start with that third grade project to that science project. It was project. so embarrassing. Everyone was doing like poster boards on like, I grew a plant that listened to music. And I was like, ahem. I have made solar panel cells out of blackberries, raspberries, and blah, blah, blah. And here's the best ones ever. I was such a weird kid. And it's all because of you. Uh, well, 
Guilty as charged. So it turns out that those organic solar cells invented by Thomas Gretzel, a Swiss scientist, are now not only starting to get real traction, but the number of different solar products, not just those old blue crystalline ones we talked about made of silicon, but now there's organic solar cells, there's quantum dot solar cells, there's an artificial material called the perovskite. All of these things came out of things like your your lower school science project, they looked like they were science fiction then, and they look incredibly doable today. So I think the starting ground is my views personally have changed, but driven largely by the fact that we were not investing enough in innovation decades ago. And we know that we've quantified it in terms of patents and 50 other metrics. Um, But The areas where I'd like to think my views have changed the most are ones where we weren't just doing the science, we were doing the social science and we were looking at the winners. Sorry, I interrupted you there, but I feel like I've pulled you a little further left than otherwise kind of with some of the social science things. I I give myself credit for that. You definitely get credit. Um, And so example, you mentioned biofuels. So the battle, if you will, over biofuels has a really interesting starting ground. We knew we could make fuel from gasoline, that's refining, but we also know you can make ethanol from corn or sugarcane or other things. And so as we looked at the relative benefits of gasoline or diesel versus ethanol, that led us to not just do kind of an energy and energetics analysis, but to look at what was the impact on land use, what was the impact on forests. And it turns out that a great deal of the biofuels that we make are not made from waste biomaterials, for which we actually have a lot, but they're made on some of the best lands. So there are yeah. areas of Brazil where to grow corn or sugarcane, we're cutting down the Amazon rainforest. Right. That is something that when biofuels were first looked at, people weren't making that connection very clearly. Now it's clear. And so when you look at the leading clean transportation places in the world, places like Norway and California and now China, biofuels are not part of the story. Electric vehicles are because electricity can be made so cleanly and so cheaply from solar and wind. So I would like to think that in the places where I've changed the perspective, it's either been because this new science emerged or because we were approaching climate change initially as a very technocratic exercise. And so when you say push to the left, that's right. If the left means quantitatively including social and racial and social justice impacts, and that's a new field, but that's the area where we're finding that you get wins that multiply by other wins. If you, for example, empower the poorest communities, whether it's in Africa or inner city United States or elsewhere, you get bigger markets, you get wins in terms of more deployment, and you also start to get the jobs benefits of the clean energy transition going to yeah. more and more people. Yeah. And that's a recipe for you know these co-benefits, these these group successes. Yeah, and sorry, I'm not trying to tell people that I like pulled you down the the alt left pipeline or whatever. But feel I feel free. Think, <laughs> no, but I do think that like in our household, I challenge a lot of the social stuff, right? Like I spend a lot of time challenging you guys on 
internalized beliefs and stuff like that. And I give myself a lot of credit for that. And I hope that, you know, in doing that, and I have a very different lived experience than you being a person of color. And I hope that by challenging that in our household, that you help bring that to policy stages. And, you know, you get to be in rooms that I'm not in. You meet with you might be surprised. You'll be in some of those rooms. You might not want to be, but you will be. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, hopefully I will, right? But like right now you have access to people in power that I don't. And, you know, I hope that by challenging you guys at home, even if it's in small ways, that, you know, you bring more of that social element into those rooms and discussions, especially when you as a white man are surrounded by other white men. Well, I think that, you know, we, we see a version of that in the climate negotiations. The most recent meeting in Madrid the year before COVID, and now this meeting coming up in Glasgow in, in November 2021. These are examples where the space that needs to be opened up for women, minorities, people of color, and in particular youth have to be made co-equal with what deals are being negotiated. And that's a process that challenges us across generations. And since yeah. climate change is going to be with us, it is truly an intergenerational problem. And that is one where there's a huge number of barriers in place today, but they've got to come down. Yeah. Well, I finished my drink, so we've got to wrap this up shortly. <laughs> we do indeed. And since we are on vacation, we're going to uh, move to the uh, evening entertainment for us. And I hope for you. I'm making audience, the whole fam play beer pong, but with gin and tonics. We'll see about the beer pong, but I'm we'll definitely this. have a little bit of discussion well, around. I do want to say that I feel like the Obama voice is a little bit out the window. And I credit that to whatever grapefruit vodka you're sipping on. <laughs> I would like to think that the Obama voice is still firmly with us today. It is not. But before you ask me That questions, means she's going to edit me out. Absolutely. Always. I edit all of your little pauses out. But before you ask me a question, there's a couple things. The first thing I want to say is thank you again for all the support on the podcast. We really appreciate it. If you want to help us out, you can obviously go leave us reviews and ratings, five stars, maybe, I don't know, up to you, but those are super helpful and we really appreciate it. But besides that, dad, I have another question for you, which is what is the one thing you would tell everybody to start changing in their lives right now to benefit the climate? Well, there's two two types of answers for that. One is where you have a next purchase and you can, and you can buy something that you know is cleaner, an electric vehicle versus a fossil fuel vehicle or installing solar panels. Those are clear choices to make. But the biggest change we can all collectively make right now is actually electing people who say they are committed to this. And it's not something which that will they'll pass on in two years that something else is in is trendy. That it's political change that's needed more than anything else. So that would be the number one feature for me. Yeah. On the first point I do want to say that you know, I think you said something really important, which is on your next purchase. Like, I think we see a lot of people who start hearing about climate change and then go out and like buy a ton of new things or like go out and, you know, throw everything in their apartment away. And, you know, you have things that you have and you should use those to their to the best of their lifetime um, before going out to kind of make new clean purchases, which I think is something that feels hard for me sometimes when you like, you know, something isn't great for the environment, but you don't want to throw it away and you have to keep using it. Um, but I do want to throw that little note in there. I think it's critical because if you just think that climate change gets solved by green consumerism, not only 
is that playing into the hands of companies that might not be looking hard at the full range of value in products that are out there, but it's also one that clearly discriminates uh, against right. lower income people and lower income countries. And so finding a way to do this in a way where it's the natural retirement process, it might be accelerated in some communities by policies or rebates or subsidies, but it's an effort where we are building a, not just a consumer culture, but a corporate culture of producing a range of green products to meet needs as they come up, not to yeah. say that we're going to solve this by, let's all get rid of our, our and, and junk our older car today. Let's transition when you would be transitioning anyway. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Sounds good. Do you have a question? I do have a question. Oh, no. And it's really an audience question first. And oh. that is that Sade already <laughs> said. me, my bad. Sade <laughs> already said, um, you know, we would welcome your feedback. But we're also particularly interested to know what are the issues both in environmental issues, but also in terms of the interaction of society with the environment, where you feel like there are topics that are just simply not well explained or not explained in good venues. The issue of ethanol was an example. Are the materials in your cell phone sustainable? Are the types of policies we're building socially and racially inclusive or divisive. Those are topics that we would love to cover. Yeah. And we definitely welcome comments and input from people thinking, here's a question I face or my friends face, and I'd love to hear a conversation about it. Yeah, 100%. We have to find ways that this becomes the wider conversation. And that was actually where I was going to end up with my, with my question for you, Sade. Oh, sorry. And that is, when you see change happening, yeah, what do you feel like are the you know, the tools available to get the word out. I don't just mean social oh. media, but what do you feel like gets lost? I mean, we talk about a patent or a company, but it's really more about social interaction. I feel like we lose a lot just kind of in the way we consume media. Like we're a very like headline driven culture. So, you know, like the IPCC thing where this quote unquote leak gets out and everyone's freaking out that the climate is done forever and there's no way to reverse the change and all of that, like that feels very headline driven. So I think a lot gets lost there. Um, I think social media is a really powerful tool in a lot of ways. I'm a big TikTok fan in terms of talking about social change. I think that's really impactful and a lot of, you know, activists do organize on social media. Um but I think, I don't know, I think it's hard where it feels like everything is really sensationalized and there's this like really 24-hour news cycle type thing where we just lose a lot of important information kind of to what is the most interesting looking headline. And so I don't know what the answer to that is. I, I feel stuck there a lot of times. I feel very paralyzed with that. And I feel like we're a very doom and gloom society. Um, Doom and Gloom does get the headlines, yeah. and you're right. Um, someone discovers a cure for this, or someone recognizes there's a new inclusive social tool. Those don't get the headlines, but those are the things that I think stick with you. And or if they do, I feel like they're not represented properly. And like, I mean, I'm guilty of this that I skim articles, I skim research articles, and just read the abstract and the methods. You know, like, or just the title, <laughs> the title, and you're like, well, well. <laughs> learned it but like you know what I mean like I think that's that's something really hard and I'm actively working to combat that in my own life and that's hard <laughs> I don't know it's just hard to do so that's one we're gonna have to come back to because it's clear that we are in a hurry up society but it's also clear that a lot of these 
issues are complicated and they require one to look at several angles. And that's something that, you know, that kind of slow food or slow digestion of ideas, it's an important part of what we're going to have to do. We're not set up for it today. It is something that's going to have to become more part of our, our culture. I'm hoping actually young people are going to be part of that solution because one of the interesting features in how we're kind of adjusting schooling, ideas like flip classrooms, some people like it, some people don't. These are all ways to get more active learning going on. And yeah. that's, that's, that's a process. And that's something that I'm hoping we internalize for the climate story, but a lot of other parts of society need it as well. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for this episode. Thank you guys for listening. Dad, thank you for bringing me on vacation. Um, and thank you for uh, getting both these topics in front of everyone and really asking some of the hard questions. So really appreciate it. And we really, really appreciate everyone who listens. Yeah, so much. All right. Well, Dad, ready for something weird? Love you. Love you too. All right. Bye, guys. We'll talk to you next week. Mm-hmm.